I was once the most prodigious letter writer I knew. And at some point I became the sender of the most anticipated emails any of my email correspondents knew. While that sounds a little self-important, suffice it to say that those days are in the past. Ben Greenman's latest collection, What He's Poised to Do, fills me with a deep black bile nostalgia for more epistolary days, and he graciously sent tonight's story, which is not included in the collection, as a sort of bonus. If you were listening to this on a CD, I'd hide it at track 99, and you'd be in for a real treat. So have a listen, and send me a letter, and maybe I'll send one back. Good evening. It's Friday the 20th of August 2010, and it's Miette's Bedtime Story Podcast. Helpmate by Ben Greenman Dear Susan Dear helpmate, dear wife, I beg your indulgence in this matter. Furthermore, I expect it. You have travelled this far with me. Come, let us travel on a little longer. Remember 1948? It was the year of everything for me and for you. It was the year of everything for us. How does everything come into being? One day we did not exist and then we sprang into existence. As a God-fearing man, I remembered how Athena came from the head of Zeus, but as a Christian, I accounted it a kind of genesis. What else was made that year? The mouth of the earth, the mouth of the well, the rainbow, fresh bread, the three trees in the front yard, and the first tongs. This requires some explanation. When you make tongs, you use tongs to lift the hot metal. Those lifting tongs, too, must have been forged. So how were they lifted? By other lifting tongs, of course. Follow it back and ask yourself, helpmate, how the first tongs were made. They were made by God, in 1948, when we stood before him and became man and wife. I said what the preacher told me to say, but I heard other voices in my mind. One of them said something I will remember forever. I will call you Susan and I will lay my hand on your brow and I will love you and I will promise to protect you always and it will stir my heart. I did exactly that. I laid my hand on your brow. Susan, do I need to tell you how beautiful you were those first few years? Sometimes I would get out of bed in the morning and pull back the sheets so that you were naked and just stand there looking at you. Who would have thought that one of the most beautiful women in the world could come from a small Nebraska town? You were the equal of any movie star. I have seen other women in this way and they cannot compare. I'm not proud of it, but this is no time for lies. I did not always walk straight along the path. In a hotel in Chicago in 1955, I started drinking with a group of baseball players. By then I was selling farm equipment. We had some money. 
was using a chunk of it to drink. The Braves were in town to play the Cubs, and some of them came to the bar of the hotel where I was staying. Not Hank Aaron, of course. He wasn't allowed. Not Warren Spahn. He was too old. But Eddie Matthews and Johnny Logan and Bob Buell and Bill Bruton and a few others. All of them had girls with them, and none of the girls were wearing wedding rings. I joined their group and we started to talk. One or two of the guys owned farms and I had played baseball in high school, so we stood on that common ground. I was a second baseman like Danny O'Connell, who wasn't there. I wasn't good, but I wasn't bad, and I might have even had a little more power than O'Connell. I said that to the guys and they took it right up. Eddie Matthews, especially. He said, O'Connell couldn't hit it over the centre field fence if there was a hurricane blowing out. Everyone laughed at Eddie Matthews' joke, even the girls. You don't not laugh at a guy like that. At one point, Bill Bruton went off to make a phone call and when he came back he said something unkind to one of the girls. She said something unkind in return and bad weather sprung up between them. Bill Bruton stormed off, but the girl stayed. She was a beautiful girl. She had red hair, green eyes, a mermaid's complexion and figure. I trusted myself as a man to slide down the booth and close the gap between us. An hour or later, she asked me if I would come up and help her fix something in her room. Aren't you with Bruton? I said. She told me that the girls had their own rooms, since wives had an annoying habit of using the telephone. There was something to fix in the room, if you can believe it. It was a rod in the closet for coat hangers. I used the heel of my palm to hammer it back into the wall. Thank you, she said. What do I owe you? She laughed at my expression. It's like you were actually figuring the price, she said. She asked me if she could get me another drink. She went for ice with tongs. They were not the first tongs any longer. I took the drink. My head was swimming. I hope that it does not reflect badly on me to say that she kissed me first. I could not have unbuckled my pants on my own. When I left the room a few hours after that, Bill Bruton's girl was stretched out on the bed. She looked lovely, but she didn't look like you, Susan. She didn't look like you. We had a baby. We had another baby. Both were brought out with tongs. I loved the babies. I held them in my arms. I waited for the love to spread outward so that I would love you too in the fashion you deserved. I waited for the love to spread outward so that I would love you too in the fashion you deserved. Once I sat on an airplane and I thought about leaving you. I had met a woman and fallen in love. 
I shut my eyes tight and my hunger for her eventually passed. The plane bounced helplessly in the air and a woman behind me called for Jesus with what was probably fear but sounded like ecstasy. Have I lost the thread? Let me pick it up. Life has been a struggle since I rose into adulthood. There was a period when I was a young man when I felt that I was winning that struggle. But now I feel there is no such thing as winning. The more flesh, the more worms. The more possessions, the more anxiety. The more women, the more witchcraft. The more maidservants, the more lewdness. The more manservants, the more theft. Last night I sat at the desk as you lay sleeping. I began this note last night. I threw away the first draft and the second. I began a third that was too sentimental, dear Susan, whom I love with all my heart. Then I did away with it all and got into the car and went to the mountains. The car is a Stutz bear cat, a 1935 that I got from a man who owned a gigantic farm upstate. I had sold him a McCormick Farmall 400, a beautiful tractor. He was so proud of it that he called his son out to take a look. His son was twelve, or maybe a little younger. He was still sweet. He hugged his father and told him that it was even better than the bear cat. My ears went up. You have a Stutz bear cat? He laughed. It's not in the bloom of its youth. It's been in a barn for ten years doing nothing much. I asked if it was for sale. If you like it, he said, it's for sale to you. I drove a tractor to the farm and drove a Stutz bear cat away from it. That was 1958. I went through Lincoln like a king. I remember thinking that night that I had crossed paths with old Charlie Starkweather, who was tearing out of town in his hot rod on his way to getting dead in Wyoming. He was twelve years younger than me, Charlie, though his birthday was only a day off. He was November 24 and I was November 25, same day as Joe DiMaggio. My mother knew a woman who knew the family and thought they were fine, upstanding people. The Starkweathers, that is. Not the DiMaggios. She wouldn't have approved of the DiMaggios. She hated San Francisco. I love the place and have been there several times on business. They have mountains there. I got in the car and did away with it all. How do I live? Is this the question? What kind of man am I? Or better, Susan, let me ask this way. What kind of man am I when I am not around you? Helpmate? Wife? When I am not around my son? Was it Frank who ran out and hugged me by the tractor? Or was it another man and another son? I have time to answer this question. I have only time. I am up here in the mountains, my head clearing, my head clouding, and I am managing the relationship between the two, 
clear and cloud, with a bit of magic that I found stashed underneath the seat in the car. I stashed it there. It is whiskey, and if there is anything richer than its golden glow, I do not know it. I am dreaming of dropping a few cubes of ice into a glass. The man who sold me the Stutz bear cat died of drink in 1959. It comes around. Am I married? I am, to you, and every day my heart gladdens when I think of it. There were other girls I could have married. There was a Lorna, whose father owned car dealerships in Omaha and Lincoln. She was a hot little coop of a thing who came on strong one summer when I was nineteen. She would have had me, except there was something vampiric about her. She would take your energy when she touched or kissed you, and if you got her clothes off it was even worse. I used to drop her off at her father's house, and wonder how I would find my health again. And yet her father wished for me to have her hand. He saw something in me that conveyed a sense of promise. This is why the marriage advice of a rich man should never be heeded. I should have listened to my own father instead. He was poor. He suffered from distress of mind throughout his life, and it was several times made worse by melancholy events. When I was seven, my mother had a baby girl who died in the crib at six weeks. When I was nine, my father lost some property in a flood, and was fleeced by dishonest insurance men. He had moments of joy, but they were rare, so rare that they only led me to understand the depth of his melancholy. When I was eleven, he came running out of the house with the newspaper in his hand. He did it, he said. He did it. He was Waldo Waterman, one of my father's heroes. Waterman was an aviator, an inventor. He had laboured for more than twenty years on a tailless aircraft he called the Watsis. He shelved the designs. He took them down from the shelf. He dreamed and woke from his dreams. I think my father found something in the story to hold on to. In 1934, the U.S. Bureau of Air Commerce called in competition for a low-cost aeroplane that could be owned the way an automobile was owned. One in every garage. Waterman, who had brought things along with the Watsis, got back to his laboratory and built the aeroplane, which evolved into the aerobile. It was the aerobile that the papers were writing about that day that my father came running out of the house with the newspaper in his hand. The aerobile had enjoyed a flawless test flight. It did not spin. It did not stall. All that stood between it and mass production was its price. The Bureau of Air Commerce wanted a device that came in around $700, and the aerobeel's cost was roughly four times that. He'll bring the cost down, my father said. This is Waldo Waterman we're talking about. 
He has energy to spare. My father was wrong about this. Waterman fell ill the following year, and his company had to close his doors. This sent my father into a deep well of sorrow. He spun, he stalled, and then in 1939 he hanged himself with a belt in the barn of our farm. I didn't see them cut him down, but I heard him fall to the floor of the barn. It was the lowest note on the piano. I remember my mother crying. I remember my grandmother crying. I remember saying something that I didn't know I would say. Why did he do it? I said. I don't agree with him at all. As I have grown older, I have found that this disagreement with my father is not so clear. He believed that pain was not to be endured, not where it could safely be avoided. I remember that he went once to the dentist for an abscess. He was cured, but for weeks he kept touching his face at the spot where the rotten tooth had been. What are you doing? I asked him. I was nine or ten. I'm trying to make sure there is not more pain, he said. I don't feel any, but it's just like pain to pretend that it's gone and then spring up and surprise you. I thought he was joking. I will write my father's name in triplicate to verify the similarities between us. William, William, William. In 1956, I found myself removing the pencil skirt and cotton panties of a young woman who worked with me at what was then B&R farm equipment. This was a short Irish girl, a real Colleen. In my desk I kept a number of bottles filled with special liquids that made the office seem like a place where a winning game might be played. I plied her with drink and praise until she was a penny rolling across the floor. At that time I had tongs and ice. Let me get you some of these babies, I said cutely as I clinked the cubes into her glass. One, two, three. We retired to a small room off the main office. I kept a cot in there. We collapsed desperately against one another on the cot and I removed just what I have said I removed. Pencil skirt, panties. She had shaved herself bare, which was shocking in those days. It suggested wantonness. Afterwards, she said, Was that love-making? And I said, If it wasn't, it was something nearby. And she said, Why did you keep touching your face? And I said, I didn't know I did. She turned away and I stroked the back of her head, the ragged line where the hair rose off the neck. She had muscles in her upper back, and I was suddenly ashamed of my own weakness, and I became sad enough to cry, though I did not do so. That night, when I came home, I told you that I didn't think I was learning from my life any longer, and you said that it was a 
peculiar thing to say, and I agreed. But I lied. I had learned plenty from my life, though not from my home. Knowledge is pain, even in small doses, and the idea that I might learn more from these women in a hotel in Chicago, in a room off the main office, well, that did me in by degrees long before I came out to the mountains. Is there any way to safely experience conscience in such a manner that it does not become corrosive guilt? This is not a question that you would expect from me, Susan. You think of me as the boy who leapt from youth into manhood armed only with his temper, with jealousy, with good work habits and a line of credit from Sable Bank and Trust. But time has changed me, Susan. All has been remade. Genesis has turned to Exodus, has turned to Leviticus. It has turned. Do you understand me, Susan? I cannot endure a man who does not understand what I am saying, no more than I can endure an empty bottle. At my time of life, Susan, it cannot be supposed that I have much energy to spare. Forever yours, never more. William.